0: Hello, friends. Welcome back. My guest today is Sheldon Solomon. I heard him on Lex Friedman's show and fell in love, reached out to him, and he very graciously decided to join me today. We're talking about The Denial of Death, a seminal book by Ernest Becker, and then the subsequent work which has taken up most of Sheldon's life. You might not be aware of it, but death drives an awful lot that we do. Humans are a unique animal in that we are aware of our own mortality – One day we will die and we know it, and that fact has a huge impact on how we live our lives. Perhaps it's the most important fact that we know. So today, expect to learn how Sheldon's experiments have proven that death anxiety is a crucial driver of behaviour, why we can hate somebody for the shape of their nose, how death anxiety causes people to be tribal, what would happen if a child grew up without any human contact, and much more. Very calm existential conversation today. Definitely a, a multiple listener. Uh, I, I adored this, and I'm definitely getting Sheldon back on. We only scratched the surface of how deep and weird I think me and, him, me and him can go today. This episode is brought to you by Whoop. I've worn Whoop for over four years now, since way before they were a partner on the show, and it is the only wearable I have ever stuck with because it's the best. It is so innocuous. You do not remember that you've got it on, and yet it tracks absolutely everything Head to drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom for that 90-day money back guarantee, a year's free supply, vitamin D, five free travel packs, and more. That's drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom.
1: Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach, with your people, and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for
0: But for now, it's time for the wise and wonderful Sheldon Solomon. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. I'm joined by Sheldon Solomon. Sheldon, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much. It's a
0: pleasure to be here, Chris. Really, really happy to have you on. Are we going to talk about death today?
1: Um, I believe that we will. Uh, Hopefully not for the sake of death per se, but in the interest of enhancing life.
0: How does death enhance life?
1: well at our best the existentialists tell us since time immemorial um, it is necessary to come to terms uh, with the most basic fact of human existence and that is that uh, that we like all living creatures are a, are of finite duration and um theologians philosophers you know people just sitting on a rock, uh, Back in the in, in antiquity, have wrestled, frankly, uh, with this idea. Um, uh, you know, every other form of life is unperturbed uh, by the reality that uh, of finitude, um, but we necessarily are. And uh, the claim, very simply, is that whether we're aware of it or not, death anxiety um, pervades every aspect. Of our existence. And and malignant manifestations of death anxiety are arguably responsible directly or indirectly uh, for a considerable proportion of human foibles. And so the claim is that both for the benefit of ourselves as individuals to, to get the most out of life, as well as for the benefit of society in general, it, it is necessary both individually and collectively to come to terms with our mortality.
0: What are some of the manifestations of how they can malignantly manifest?
1: Yes, yeah, so, so great question. I'll back up a little bit just to give folks um, some detail the the work that we do. Um, is is derived from a cultural anthropologist, Ernest Becker, who in the 1970s uh, won a Pulitzer Prize for a book called The Denial of Death. And uh, what Becker argued, uh, you know, very simply, is that, um, yeah, humans are like all other living things, Uh, you know, Darwinian-wise, that uh, we are biologically predisposed to want to survive in the interest of self-preservation and and for reproduction um and yet uh, we're different than other creatures and without being overly arrogant the claim is that our, our huge forebrain uh, gives us the capacity to think abstractly and symbolically uh, to the point where we can even imagine stuff that doesn't yet exist and then have the audacity to take our dreams and render them real And that could not be more uplifting Uh, to me. uh, uh, I like Otto Ronk, you know, Freud's boy who said humans make the unreal real. And and we don't want to lose track of the fact that all other creatures uh, have to uh, accept the world in the form in which they encounter it. You know, I get it. Spiders uh, make webs, beavers make dams, bees make hives, and, and they've been doing it quite well for hundreds of millions of years. Yeah, but they don't imagine a flying machine like da Vinci, you know, in the 1500s or 1400s. Uh, or, and then actually, you know, centuries later, we're flying around in what was originated in somebody's imagination. All right. All great so far uh, until and still great. Um, when when uh, Ernest Becker says, OK, uh, let's now move to Kierkegaard, the Danish existential philosopher who said, you know, people are so smart that we realize that we're here. Uh, and uh, and of course, humans, we take this for granted. You know, you wake up every day and you're like, here I am. I woke up or, you know, you're walking down the street. You're like, here I am walking down the street. Or it can get even crazier than that. Here I am walking down the street thinking about that I'm walking down the street. So, uh, you know, you could be, wow, now I'm thinking about that. I'm thinking about that I'm walking down the street until you have to turn into the nearest pub to extricate yourself from this perseverating cycle uh, of annoying uh, self-focus. Well, so what? You know, Kierkegaard said, uh, you know, if you're smart enough to know that you're here. Uh, which he insisted requires a sophisticated cognitive apparatus to render yourself the object of your own subjective inquiry, then you're going to experience two uniquely human emotions, awe and dread. And and Kierkegaard's like, wait wait a minute, it's awesome to be alive and to know it. That's just great. That's why if you get to choose between being a person and a potato – or a person (laughs) on a potted plant, uh, you make your own choice. (laughs) But I want to be I want to be a person. Um, And so like that, that is awesome. And I I always want to emphasize just to cheer myself up and and also to make an important point. All silliness aside, I I don't think uh, it is good for us or for humanity uh, to lose track uh, of The fact that in our finest moments, uh, it is just the sheer joy of being alive, the spontaneous exuberance of wallowing in uh, just the mystery of life that I think is what makes life uh, most worthwhile. But Kierkegaard says, yeah, but it's also dreadful to be alive and to know it uh, because um, unless you're a child or cognitively impaired, if you're smart enough to know that you're here, you're also smart enough to know that, like all living things, you too will someday die. And Ernest Becker's point is that that unwelcome realization, the, the worm at the core of the human experience, as William James put it, that that was the most significant psychodynamic event In the history of the human species, it it was a quite unintended byproduct uh, of consciousness, which is otherwise, uh, you know, quite frankly, tremendously uplifting and adaptive, but it doesn't end there. So, uh, you know, psychological kick in the groin, number one is uh, you're going to die someday. Uh, Number two um, is that not only will you die someday, but you can die at any time for reasons that you could never anticipate or control. It'd be bad enough if I knew I was going to die, you know, in some vaguely unspecified future moment with all of my friends and family, uh, you know, linked arm in arm, chanting Kumbaya into the afterlife. That will be maybe okay, uh, but I know I can walk outside and get smote by a comic. Uh, comet or or a pandemic. Uh, And then on top of that, uh, Becker says, wow, uh, humans, we don't welcome the idea that we're going to die. And we certainly uh, are discombobulated by the fact that death is always potentially imminent. And then on top of all of that, uh, borrowing from Freud, we chafe at the idea that we're embodied animals, uh, respiring pieces of defecating meat, uh, no more significant or enduring uh, than barnacles or armadillos. And all that Becker says is, look, if that's the only thing that you were thinking about, you know, I'm going to die someday. Uh, I could get hit by a comet. You know, I'm a breathing piece of, uh, me, uh, you, you would not be able to stand up in the morning. You, you would be crippled by overwhelming existential terror that, according to Becker, human beings manage uh, by embracing what he calls cultural worldviews, humanly constructed beliefs about reality, uh, that we share with the people in our group, uh, that reduces death anxiety by giving us a sense of that life has meaning and we have value and basically um that's the essence of of becker's um way of thinking about things we're smart enough to know that we're here uh that makes us aware of the fact that we are finite and vulnerable embodied creatures uh that raises the possibility of being flattened by debilitating terror that we manage uh, by 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 embracing a belief system that allows us to feel like life has meaning and we have value. And, and moreover, if you're lucky enough to believe that you're a person of value in a world of meaning, that's what Becker calls self-esteem. And, and then he says, well, uh, that that whether we're aware of it or not, uh, we spend. Uh, Most of our waking moments and perhaps many of our dreaming ones trying to maintain confidence in our cultural worldviews and uh, a sense that we are people of value in the context of them. All right. Having said all of that, Chris, now back to your fine question, which is okay, let's now think about the implications of that fact. Uh, for non-optimal outcomes. Because what a lot of people said to Becker is, well, look, so what? You know, let's say that you're right. Uh, My beliefs about reality uh, serve to diminish death anxiety. And and it does so by making me feel like life has meaning and I have value. Well, you know, if it's not broke, don't fix it. You know, some people just said, "Well, maybe that's that's what's happening," uh, to which Becker replies, um, "Yes, um, that is what's happening, and, and we now need to consider some of the." Uh, uh, less than desirable, uh, outcomes as a result. And so for example, um, where we got interested in these ideas, Chris, my buddies, Jeff Greenberg and Tom Pazinski and I, uh, we've spent almost the last 40 years we're egghead experimental psychologists. And so, uh, Becker, you know, writes this book, he gets a Pulitzer prize. He couldn't get a job when he was alive. Uh, and, We couldn't get any of these ideas published when we first were attracted to them in the 1980s because people said there's no evidence uh, for any of these ideas, nor is it possible to collect any evidence. And so we're like, okay, uh, let's see if we can do that. And what we were interested in at the time uh, was how come people can't get along with other people who don't share their beliefs in reality. You know, why is it that uh, since minute one, you know, uh, if you even the most benign uh, look at human history, Uh, reveals what I think is a grotesque and ugly picture, an ongoing succession of genocidal atrocities juxtaposed with the brutal subjugation of designated in-house inferiors. And and we are now at the point in human history where, of course, uh, it's a cliche, uh, but we possess the kind of weapons that could reduce the earth. To rubble, uh, and so this long-standing problem, as Robert J. Lifton, a, a psychohistorian who I'm fond of, in a book called "Destroying the World to Save It," uh, he's like, "Wow, we may be the first form of life to be responsible for our own extinction because of our inability to get along with folks who are different than ourselves." And, and uh, Becker's account is, is disarmingly simple, uh, and he has two points. One is he says, "Well." if my beliefs about reality help me reduce death anxiety, then whenever I run into somebody who's different, I've got a problem whether I'm aware of it or not. If I believe God created the earth in six days, and then I run into somebody in the Fulani tribe in Mali, and they think that the earth was created out of a giant drop of milk, well, if they're right, then I've got to be wrong. And so one point that Becker makes is that the mere existence of people with alternative belief systems is fundamentally threatening. So that's point number one. Point number two, in a book called Escape from Evil, which is after the denial of death, uh, Becker says, here's the other problem. Our culturally constructed beliefs are very potent but they're still symbolic, whereas death is a very real biological fact, and there's no symbol that is potent enough to completely eliminate death anxiety. Therefore, in Psychobabble, uh, there's residual anxiety uh, that is repressed, and I love Becker's language. He says, look, there's going to be death anxiety, there's going to be a panic rumbling beneath the surface of consciousness. And, and, and that panic is so unpleasant that what we do psychodynamically is we project it and we we basically lay it on to other people or groups of people that we just declare to be the all-encompassing repositories of evil. and And so the point here is that Even if there weren't people who were different around, we would create those differences. We would need to Virginia Wolf in a room of uh, uh, one's own. She just says, if necessary, we'll hate somebody for the shape of their nose and for the color of their shirt because we can't help it. We've got to have a way of offloading our insecurities. Either way, Uh, What Becker argues is that what we do when we bump into folks who are different or declare people to be different is we denigrate them, uh, we badger them to abandon their beliefs and adopt ours instead, or or we just kill them, uh, thus demonstrating the superiority of our beliefs uh, after all. And our experiments show that this is very much the case. So our studies are are very simple. Uh, They involve uh, 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 reminding some people that they're going to die, and other people uh, are asked to think about something unpleasant but not fatal, Uh, like you're getting a root canal without anesthetic, you've been in a car accident, and they have to chop off one of your legs. All painful, uh, but beats being dead. Uh, And sometimes we remind people they're going to die by stopping them outdoors in front of a funeral parlor as opposed to 100 meters on either side. Yeah, that's a good one. And sometimes we bring people into the lab and we have them read stuff on the computer while we flash the word death for 48 milliseconds so fast that you can't see anything. Uh, And so when we do that, uh, what we find, for example, is that if you remind Christians that they're going to die, uh, they love Christians more, and they hate Jewish people. Uh, and it has nothing to do with Christianity. If you remind Israelis that they're going to die, they love Israelis, uh, and they hate Arabs. Uh, and ditto all over the world, but it's not only about attitudes. Germans reminded that they're going to die. They sit closer to people who look German, further away from people who look like immigrants. Um, you remind Iranians that they're going to die and they become more willing to uh, blow themselves up. They become more willing to become suicide bombers. You remind Americans they're going to die, and they become more supportive of using uh, biological, chemical, and nuclear weapons against countries who pose no direct threat to us. All right. So one malignant manifestation uh, of death anxiety is that it increases, it amplifies the hostility and disdain uh, that we have towards people who are different. Uh, and uh, if I can remember it, I, I always loved George Bernard Shaw on your side of the pond a century ago in a heartbreak house, one of my favorite plays. He says, uh, when the angel of death sounds his trumpet, the pretenses of civilization are blown from men's heads into the mud like hats in a gust of wind. So that's one possibility. I can babble about a few more, I will, and then you'll shut me off. But anyway, (laughs) another thing that we are really interested in and I think is very pertinent right now, both here and on your side of the world, is the extent to which existential anxieties uh, impel us to embrace certain kinds of political leaders. Max Weber, dead German sociologist at the beginning of the 20th century, he said in times of historical upheaval, uh, when existential uncertainties are apt to prevail, that people are prone uh, to become attached to and supportive of a particular kind of leader, uh, he coined the term charismatic that we're now all familiar with seemingly larger than life individuals that are often believed to be divinely ordained to rid the world of evil. Uh, And Becker uses uh, Weber's analysis to understand um, how Hitler came to power uh, in Germany. Uh, you know, the Germans had been humiliated um, after World War One. The economy was decimated. And here comes Hitler saying, I can make Germany great again. Only I can do it. And he gave the Germans it was a tremendously uplifting psychological vote of confidence to restore uh, meaning and value in a, a very psychologically tenuous time. And I'm not saying that this ended well, The in fact, the point is that it rarely does. We became interested in this in the aftermath of September 11th, 2001, when President George W. Bush, in a three-week period, went from having the lowest uh, support in the history of presidential pollings to three weeks after 9-11, he had the highest. Uh, And we're like, wow, maybe, um, maybe intimations of mortality had something to do with it. Maybe September 11th was like a giant death reminder. Uh, of course it was. You had the people dying and jumping off the World Trade Center. Uh, terrorists are evil, but they choose their targets wisely. They, they didn't target random buildings. They targeted the Pentagon uh, and the World Trade Center. That's right. And they did it with airplanes from American and United Airlines or U.S. Air. They knew uh, what what they were doing. And so we did a lot of studies uh, prior to the 2004 election where we showed that reminding people of death increased their support for President Bush. And in fact, in the absence of a death reminder. Our participants liked Senator John Kerry, who was the Democratic challenger in that election, much more than President Bush. All right. So fast forward to 2015. uh, We got Donald Trump uh, saying, oh, I'm going to I'm going to make America great again. Uh, I am the only one that can keep you safe from the rapists and the drug dealers, the negrotinous hordes storming the borders, uh, the terrorists that are parachuting into America to rape our daughters and eat our chicken wings and the Chinese uh, that are threatening our economy. Uh, And uh, and, um, it worked. Uh, And so uh, President Trump, now President Trump, Uh, Despite the fact that uh, in the eyes of more than 60 million Americans, they're like, wait a minute, Um, uh, it's really a bad idea to have a vulgar, sadistic, vindictive, pathologically narcissistic, sociopathic, racist, xenophobic, misogynistic, homophobic, functionally illiterate, twittering, Mussolini, pussy grabbing, cheese doodle impersonator. That would be a bad idea. Uh, to have someone like that uh, in office. Uh, And uh, moreover, uh, uh, psychiatrists and psychologists said, it's really a bad idea to uh, that. That uh, that now President Trump uh, has a unique combination of toxic psychological disorders, that being malignant narcissism, sociopathy, uh, lack of empathy, touch of paranoia. When you have somebody with a massive ego who is congenitally incapable of ever admitting that they're wrong, uh, that's going to be a problem, particularly if any crisis arises. Uh, Because there's no way a person with that particular set of affectations will be capable of acting in anyone's interest but their own. Be that as it may, we then did studies um, that demonstrated the same thing, uh, specifically uh, that in America, support for President Trump is magnified. Uh, by uh, intimations of mortality Uh, in a control condition. uh, Americans liked uh, Hillary Clinton more than they did Donald Trump. But if they were reminded of their mortality first, they now like Donald Trump a lot more. So that's another area uh, where death anxiety uh, has potent effects that I believe to have serious implications for the future of democracy. And this is not only on the U.S. side of things. I think a lot of the things that are happening uh, in the U.K., um, uh, you know, to be silly and at the risk of annoying people, we have orange Hitler over here, you've got yellow Hitler, and there's a bunch of other uh, Hitler's, uh, uh, you know, right-wing populist movements that parlay death anxiety Into support because it is well known. A woman I like, Hannah Arendt, in a book called The Origin of Totalitarianism, uh, after written in the 1950s, she just points out that, um, you know, it's pretty much the same playbook. Another guy I like a lot, Eric Hoffer, wrote a book called The True Believer. And what all these kind of leaders do, they're like alchemists of hate, they they are very good at a ketoing. Existential anxieties, they convert fear into hate because they take the internal anxiety and they tell their followers who it is that they're supposed to hate. Anyway, that doesn't bode well for democracy. Another area of inquiry is uh, just studies that show that death anxiety makes us uncomfortable with the fact that we're embodied animals, makes us uncomfortable with nature makes us more likely uh, to, uh, to, to engage in behaviors vis-a-vis nature that undermine uh, the preservation of non-renewable resources. And so, uh, basically, death anxiety has demonstrably negative effects on environmental concerns. It has the opposite effect uh, on our seeming insatiable desire for money and stuff. And so on the one hand, when death is on our minds, uh, it really makes us distance ourselves from nature. On the other hand, when death is on our minds, it makes us run to the television, to the pub and to the shopping mall. Um, and um, and this is an idea that also goes back uh Quite a bit, uh, in fact. Uh, who's it? John Locke in his second treatise on government. What is it? 1690. He said, "Look, anything that really matters, anything that is real, there's an upper limit to how much you can want." Uh, and uh, and so and, and he explained that. He said that's because anything in nature is of finite duration. So if you like apples, well that's great. But after like 10 apples, you're like, Oh, I've had enough. But, but, and if you like pizza, all right, I've had a, you know, a whole pizza. That's enough. I like beer after eight pints. No, maybe 10. That's, that's enough. You know, just fill in the blank. Well, but what's the one thing that people can't get enough of? Well, there's never enough money and, and there's never enough stupid shit. If you'll, Pardon the expression, a consumer society would collapse in a matter of hours if people bought only what they genuinely needed. So anyway, um, uh, what Becker says is, look, whenever there's insatiable desires, you can assume that death anxiety underlies them. And sure enough, if we remind people they're going to die, they say they need more money to feel wealthy. Uh, They're more eager to buy things that are luxury items. They'll even pay more money to have a star named after them, uh, in the galaxy. And then I'll say one more thing and and then back to you, Chris, and I appreciate the time just to belt these out because I, I do think that one of the things that is, I find compelling about these ideas is how pervasive they apply to a range of superficially disparate human affectations. The idea uh, that death anxiety influences, you know, who you hate, uh, who you voted for, how you feel about being outside and so on, uh, whether or not uh, you like a certain kind of car i find that quite astonishing but the last thing that um that i would note is just that uh, death anxiety amplifies all existing forms of psychological disorders and uh so if you're depressed and you're reminded of death you become more depressed if you're afraid of spiders you become more uh, afraid of spiders and 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 so on and so forth and so Yeah. The basic argument here, you know, and it sounds kind of corny, but when we write about this, we we use a phrase from a a guy, a a British author. I like Thomas Hardy, a novelist who says, if a way to the better there be, it comes from taking a close look at the worst. And, you know, that is uh, humanity uh, at its worst. Right. Hateful. Proto-fascists, you know, kind of raping the earth in our effort to maximize the accumulation, you know, of money and stuff in a perpetual, uh, you know, alcohol pill infused Facebook Twittering stupor. And so that's that's not great, of course. Uh, But it doesn't follow from that, you know, just getting back to where we started the conversation, uh, that it doesn't follow from that, that uh, we can't use these same ideas uh, more productively. Because I think what we have to note is that everything that I've talked about so far is, is in response to really subtle, even unconscious reminders of death. And so when you asked me, when we began to talk a half an hour ago, when you said, all right, you know, what is why is it so important uh, that we come to terms with death? I like Albert Camus come to terms with death thereafter. Anything is possible. Um, This is really a plea. But to not leave our death anxiety buried under the psychological bushes, you know, where it comes back to bear bitter fruit, this is rather a plea, you know, not to wallow in in concerns about mortality. That's not the point. If you want to do that, you start a goth punk rock band and that might be pretty good, uh, but rather, uh, you know, to courageously and and, uh, you know, with diligence to embrace the lifelong task uh, of coming to terms with the reality of death uh, in a very self-conscious way uh, because that can produce outcomes that are of a distinctly more favorable kind.
0: Dude, I love that. I absolutely love that. I've got a million different doorways to hell open in my mind at the moment, so I'm going to try and close a couple of them. Uh, One of the questions I had was you mentioned that the denial of death, is innate and is essentially fixed by culture or one of the particular tools we use to try and dampen that down is culture. Presumably evolutionarily our current brain manifestation and thus awareness of death would have arisen before we had culture to be able to deal with it. What do you think ancient man would have done?
1: Yeah. Wow. All right. Uh, Chris, uh, I'm sorry we lost our video, so I can't smile at you. That's like an awesome question. And if I could answer that, uh, you know, I'd be chugging rum uh, in a coconut (laughs) with my Nobel Prize (laughs) on the beach. No, that um, because uh, as a lot of folks have noted, um, uh, as we have pondered uh, for quite some time, uh, you know, the the apes and the chimps from which, uh, we presumably evolved, you know, are unaware of death and, and don't appear thereby to deny it. We most assuredly are. And you're raising an important question, which is phylogenetically, how did that happen? And, um, the argument that we make and, uh, this is necessarily speculative, of course, but there are other scholars who have independently come up with similar ones. Uh, the argument is that um, humans were almost certainly uh, back in the day uh, engaged in ritualistic behavior uh, of a religious nature. Uh, and this is long before of uh, the awareness of death arose even if it was uh, vague uh, and it's long before even gods arose so emile durkheim a french sociologist uh, he points out and uh, david sloan wilson who's a, a, an evolutionary biologist uh, they argue that that uh, that religion arose Basically, a social glue, a, a way to foster social cohesion and coordination uh, what's between. The, large... Sorry
0: to interject there, Sheldon. What's the Latin word for religion? Is it reg, regul or regoth? Or I, you know, I I
1: should have looked that up. Yeah, it, it means to bind, to, bind. to Yeah, that's it, or to tie. Yes. and I so think social glue
0: is, is an, an, a very apt term for it.
1: Yeah. That, no, thanks, Chris, and please jump in here because I do think that this is important. The the idea is that you know we are uber social creatures and 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 for Durkheim that there's an emotional component to this binding uh, he just said that there is something tremendously uplifting about being in the company of our fellow humans in uh, moments that uh, can only be described as uh, you know just ones that are 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 they are described as moments of like transcendental joy, um, where you know you're back in the day. Uh, it's a beautiful day. The hunt has gone well. Life is good. Everybody's hanging around, and, and there's just this collective effervescence, which for Durkheim has a lot to do uh, with what underlies the appeal of religion. But anyway, back to our story. the The argument is that there already was uh, a primitive, in the non-pejorative sense, early forms of ritualistic behavior uh, that served a religious function. And this is before uh, the origin of the mythical narratives that eventually came uh, to correspond to the behavior. And so the argument is that the rituals came first, and then uh, the narrative account of why we're engaged in them came subsequently. And one possibility is that all of this is happening while human beings are uh, reaching uh, a threshold of self-awareness, both Nietzsche as well as Otto Rank, probably based on Nietzsche. uh, They hypothesized that uh, self-awareness just kind of gradually increased but then it gets to a, a, a point where there's kind of a tipping point where you become explicitly aware uh, of the prospect of mortality, at which point the argument is that uh, different there were probably different mythological accounts uh, of the world that existed at the time, and, and that just through the process of natural selection— uh, that the ones that tended to offer existential comfort uh, in the form of promises of either literal or symbolic immortality uh, were probably those that were most appealing and therefore persisted over time. Mm. So I don't know if that makes any sense. No, it, but that's it uh, the-
0: absolutely, absolutely does. Um do you think, oh God, man, Sheldon? I've got, I've got about fifty questions that I need to ask. Ask at the same time. Um, first one: Is that tipping point us stepping out of the bicameral mind and into something above that? Yes. Right. That's 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 what I, I wanted to know. Um, I, absolutely. And this. Uh, the, uh, so you, you know the Julian Jane stuff? No. Please tell oh,
1: me. so you said bicameral mind. This is awesome. I'm enjoying this immensely, although selfishly. It's not about me being entertained, Chris, but <laughs> there's a guy in 1975, you're too young, uh, uh, Julian Jaynes, The Origin of Consciousness and the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind. And, and so to answer your question, and that's one of my favorite books and I how I got interested in this. Uh. Because uh, James's point is that for much of human history, we were kind of automatons uh, and that it's only recently uh, that we've gotten into full death denial mode. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that is a reflection of the breakdown of the bicameral mind, leaving us starkly aware of the reality of our condition that's why nietzsche said that consciousness is the most calamitous stupidity by which we shall someday perish or perish
0: someday that's a beautiful quote I, I, yeah you it's really interesting to think about what it would have been like to not know that you well i mean you're technically not your own thoughts but you're at least aware that they're coming from somewhere within you as opposed to being bestowed on you by a god someone who's essentially sort of speaking words in your ear um yeah, that I mean, whoever the first human was that decided to cross whatever threshold of consciousness it is, that's a it's a very uncomfortable frontier to be the first person to no, get to step on. Absolutely
1: no, absolutely, Chris. And I wish I had the skills to like do science fiction because you know the argument and I think it's quite plausible, is it might have happened a shit ton of times over history. You know, so imagine you're the one self aware person. You know, in antiquity, it, it must have been quite a ride.
0: <laughs> yeah, definitely would have been. No one else would have been able to understand you. Um, That's correct. Right. Next question is: What? I, actually, I'm going to I'm going to diverge again and just open up another branch. What is your view? I know you're not a, an evolutionary psychologist an evolutionary biologist, but I'm going to ask you it anyway. What is your view of the reason why consciousness exists?
1: Wow. Yeah, again another uh, Nobel Prize winning
0: one. Well, um, just small so, questions today, shall? Yeah, is it the simple yeah. ones, the real <laughs> easy ones for you.
1: <laughs> yeah, oh, and I'm happy to talk again if you want to save the trivial pursuits to next time around.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> um you know, always depends on who you ask. You know, the uh, and you know, so Steven Pinker, you know, Harvard, smart guy, he said the problem of consciousness is the central issue of uh you know psychological discourse for the 21st century and and he's probably right um and um and so as you know there's some people who think that consciousness is uh, epiphenomenal it's just really like an ethereal mist given off as an irrelevant afterthought it's just a byproduct of uh, other processes Mm -hmm, and um I find that extraordinarily unconvincing uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, And even folks uh, uh, like um, uh, selfish Gene uh, Richard Dawkins, Mm -hmm. um, uh, he writes in the 1970s that he finds it inconceivable. Uh, that consciousness uh, has uh, no functional value. Um, Nicholas Humphrey, who's a British guy, uh, he wrote a book called Consciousness Regained, I think in the 1980s. And um, I favor his view, which is that consciousness may have evolved um, in social settings, that it's not actually an individual psychological attribute but rather that in a complex setting, um, knowing how you're feeling was probably a good way to figure out how other people are feeling. And being able to know that, that's like theory of mind in Mm -hmm, Psychobabble, mm -hmm. makes it so much easier to negotiate your relationships with fellow human beings. And, And so one possibility is that consciousness arose um, in order to facilitate social interaction. Uh, Isn't
0: isn't it interesting that one of the common threads that we've gone through today, and this this ties really nicely back to a question to do with death that's been sort of lurking in the back of my head since you started talking, death is inherently an individual phenomenon. I know that we're all going to die, but the fear of death is something that we all, a burden that we all bear on our own. And yet. For some reason, our favorite antidote to this particular fear of death is to tribalize, is to somehow use other people that are the us and other people also that are the them to try and fix a problem which is inherently individualistic. And what have we found again here? There's a, a couple of other interesting theories of consciousness is reason for being here that I've stumbled upon recently that I really enjoy. But that one, the one that you've just proposed there, which you think you've got a fair bit of support for, which again is that humans have this conscious process so that we can better understand what other people are thinking. It means we can either deceive or cooperate or do a million That's other right. things with them more accurately. Like That's it's right it's so I, I find it so interesting, um perhaps it's particularly fascinating because I'm an only child, that our most important elements perhaps the thing which underlies which you're proposing underlies all of our behavior and the thing which facilitates that underlying being made conscious both of those things have an inherently social aspect to them yes
1: I uh, again i it really well put uh, and really in my estimation important and in And also in my estimation chris, accounts for a lot of the difficulties that i find we're now having um in the world uh, in in terms of of uh, uh, just political difficulties uh, but i don't mean this to i don't mean this as a political diatribe, but it's ironic is it not that the u s and the u k are the most individualistic cultures in the history of Earth. We're the richest and most technologically adroit uh, for the moment. Um, And in part because, you know, we've got this John Locke idea that there's no such thing as society, that there's just individuals. And that's quite psychotic. Uh, It's never been true. And yet we carry on as if it is. But uh, when, in fact, as you noted, uh, our entire evolutionary past uh, is based on our uber social nature, ultimately in the service of fostering cooperation. Uh, I can and, see. Uh, I
0: can. I can, I can. In a in a modern society that's hyper convenient and yes. where we feel incredibly detached from our own animal nature and from the natural world at large. Yes. I can see. I, I'm a red blooded meritocracy loving capitalist through and through as mu- as me much too. as it can get um, me too and yet I can also so I, I understand why people don't have this sense of connectedness to yes. a wider, and I also mentioned as I said, only child, which gives you a particularly unique view on solitude, i think yes um so yeah I, I, I get it, you know, I see why the meritocratic 21st century hyper convenient detached from the natural world World worldview that viewpoint i I understand how it can create that
1: yes oh and and, but just to put in a caveat i share your view i in principle uh, i i believe in meritocracy and, and individual initiative embedded in a communal setting uh, with the stipulation that in principle there's enough to go around so that anybody who exerted sufficient effort would have a reasonable chance of uh, there being a decent outcome. And, uh, you know, that's where the proverbial devils in the details. Mm. Um, but anyway, yes, very good point.
0: Cool. Um, Next thing, <laughs> I'm still closing doors to hell. Oh, by the way, Sheldon, have you got, when's your next appointment or what else have you got on today?
1: Oh, it's two fifteen. And again, I'm happy to talk again if you find it.
0: Uh, I don't know uh, what time from, it is for you. What time is it now? 10 oh, I'm one. sorry. I'm, no, oh, 10 I'm at one fifty-one. I've got let's say twenty minutes or so. Cool. Right. I am going to. I'm going to move on. Um, what do you think happens if we defeat death one day? Have you considered that? I had David Pierce, one of the foremost thinkers behind the transhumanism movement on, he's talking about extending life, whether we have whole yep. brain emulation, integrating with machines, we use yep. uh, pharmaceuticals to extend our life, we do all sorts of other different things. What yep. happens if we defeat death one day?
1: Yeah, great. Again, another great question. Um It's one that goes back uh, to antiquity uh you know the in uh, ancient greeks the gods uh were immortal and their lives were miserable and banal and uh, one philosophical notion uh is that it would be uh, terrible uh to live in a world uh, where one existed in perpetuity i i like a, a american philosopher martha nussbaum uh, who just points out uh, if if there was no such thing as death then the very meaning of something being meaningful becomes meaningless you know there there's nothing consequential what does it mean to say somebody has courage or somebody's generous um if uh, if if like a video game um you know if something bad happens you just re-up your avatar and hit the trail again. (laughs) So that's one possibility is that it would be boring to a degree uh, that um, would make most uh, legal tomes seem uplifting by comparison. Another possibility is that, uh, and this is one that Ernest Becker uh, considers in The Denial of Death, is that rather counterintuitively, It might make us more anxious. Um, And his his argument is by example. He just says, well, let's say that you're climbing up a mountain, you're 10 years old and your life expectancy is 80 years, and you fall into the bottom of the Grand Canyon and you die. Well, that's a downer because you just lost 70 years of life. Now, let's say you're climbing up a mountain, and you expect to live half a million years or forever <laughs> and you fall down the mountain. And, and his point is, is you can banish death, but you can never banish chance. Uh, you don't know that you're going to, you might get smote by a comet and your body might be vaporized. Uh, you don't know that maybe you've abandoned your body and you put yourself on a, a cloud somewhere. Yeah. But when the power goes down, Um, uh, there's not going to be any cloud. In other words, you can banish death, but you can't banish chance. And and therefore, Becker argues that death anxiety might increase, and and our defensive reactions, therefore, or thereafter, uh, might also increase commensurately.
0: Yeah, yeah, that would be be an awful side effect. Right, guys, we can live forever, but we're all going to be so unbelievably afraid that there we're not go. we're not prepared to do uh, uh, anything yeah. because the potential downside of uh, of it going wrong that the asymmetry starts to to lean i suppose that you know the 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 nice thing about only living 80 years is if you you know die before you've reached middle age at kind of 35 you're like well i nearly got 50 percent of the way there Like, it's not that long. So, yeah, bizarrely, our short lives actually assuage the fear of death to some some way or another, which is is very interesting. What insight about our minds do you wish more people knew?
1: Oh, wow.
0: Oh, what a disarmingly great. Question: <laughs> Sheldon, you just continue with the flattery today. In fact, if I can, if I can bring you on to just flatter me during other episodes, with you know, if a guest's being difficult, and you can just say something nice about me, that would be, that would be.
1: Fantastic. Yeah, no, you know, I, I mean this uh, sincerely, and you can edit it out, Chris. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not any uh, world famous entity, and I do talk to a lot of people. And it's often excruciating, and this has been just
0: <laughs>
1: delightful, uh, I, honestly. So, I, um, all right. So, back to the the mind. Um, what okay. insights
0: What insight so, do right. you wish
1: that one, one insight uh, would be to uh, please abandon the uh, your affection for whether you're aware of, aware of it or not uh, the Cartesian dualism that pervades Western society that sees the mind and the body as uh, separate and diso- dissociated, either in principle or in practice. So I would urge people to put the mind back in their brain and back in their body and, and uh, to, to view ourselves more holistically, not as minds that happen to be situated in a physical carcass. But rather to view ourselves as physical carcasses that happen to be lucky enough uh, to be imbued with a kind of mindedness uh, that is a fantastic uh, opportunity uh, to have a great life and even make the world a bit better in in the process of living it. So that would be one thing uh, I would I I say some of these things, Chris, to remind myself Uh, and Uh, Another thing uh, I I would say at the risk of maybe sounding a a little silly is that um, people – no, this is not silly. I mean this earnestly. There's a wide body of research that suggests that a lot of people see a phenomenon associated with mind as essential in the sense that you're born with a mind, you have certain capacities, and that's all there is to it. And the fact of the matter is, is that even viewing our minds that way lobotomizes us. Um, We should view the mind more as a muscle uh, that uh, can be used in a variety of ways and can be developed over time vis-a-vis effort. This doesn't mean we can all be Einstein or Mm -hmm. Beethoven, Mm -hmm. but we can all be uh, 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 a lot more uh who we are destined to become then we give ourselves credit for and my last piece of advice is that you don't have to be great at everything so i put in a plea uh, for the average and the mundane um, you know we, we i think we tend to think oh i have a mind so i got to write a novel i got to get a nobel prize um And those things are good, but so is being a decent human uh, enjoying the fact that you happen to be alive on a beautiful day when you've had enough to eat and a place to stay. And so I, I think the mind can be deployed for a much wider variety of essential functions tied to intellect, emotion, and intuition than we often give it credit for.
0: I love that. I love that. So I'm going to give you a thought experiment to do. Uh have you seen the film Mother? I have not although it's on my list. Cool. You, do you know the premise? No, I don't. Okay. So, um a baby is born inside of a factory where it is raised by a robot. And right. then later on some some complications <laughs> happen. I won't spoil it for you. Um the my my end goal question is is there a me outside of my cultural influence? And the thought experiment is a baby is born. We have managed to come up with a very, very clever way to program a robot to be able to keep said human alive. Right. Whilst not or whilst minimizing or, if possible, giving zero cultural influences. What would that person be like? Wow. Awesome. uh
1: yeah, go get your Nobel Prize for question asking. <laughs> all, right, dep- all right, depends who you ask. So again, uh, and I'm, I'm agnostic on this. These are like the questions of my youth when we dabbled far too often in hallucinogens. I love thinking about because you know. So you got the you you, have, you got like the Nietzsche or even John Locke blank slate. Yeah, uh, uh, which is that you would be not much different than a respiring pincushion. Uh, under those conditions. And um, so that's one possibility. The alternative is that there's got to be, this goes back again to the ancient Greeks, but it, it's also Piaget. A lot of folks thought, no, there's there's got to be something because you can't, Uh, In order to understand Piaget claimed anything, you have to be able to connect it to something that you, quote, already know. So if there's not at least some implicit knowledge, including knowledge of ourselves, then there be nothing upon which to construct a self or phenomenological view of the world. So I'm dodging your question. I, I, I <laughs> it's a I, very diplomatic answer. No, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, because I I think I could see it both ways, and uh, and uh, and some of the people that I've been like struggling with, like philosophers, like uh, I've been trying to understand Martin Heidegger for the past couple of years, and. I, I think these guys do a great job, better than me, of uh, of obfuscating and dodging <laughs> those questions uh, uh, with thousand-page books, not just two minutes uh, of, yeah, yeah. <laughs> of verbal gymnastics. No, uh, that that is. Um, uh, Actually, one of the the finest questions. I, I would I would say though, uh, just based on some of the things that I've been reading lately, uh, there's a book by a, a famous guy. Uh, he's a primatologist, Michael Tomasello, at the Max Planck Institute in Germany. It's called Becoming Human, uh, and uh, I think that a human being raised under those conditions would be pretty much like a great ape. Uh, and that is that Mm. would be able to learn from experience uh, and might even be able to learn from observing somebody else doing something. Uh, But the way that Tomasello puts it is that in the absence of the capacity to have joint attention with another human, which the the robot couldn't do, Mm -hmm. that, that you can't get to the next step which he claims um, is the prerequisite for the kind of awareness that ultimately distinguishes us as human.
0: So the denial of death, the awareness of death, as you said at the beginning, I love that kind of spectrum that we had of awe at one end and dread at the other. I didn't realize until this conversation that that was the way it works, but it totally is. The ability for us to see beauty, to look at the night sky, feel insignificant, you know, uh, go on a walk and pick up a leaf and sort of marvel at its beauty is matched only by our ability to be completely terrified at the fact that one day it's all going to end. That's that, the poet Rilke walking with... Who is he walking with? And he starts crying. I will. Uh, Not Nietzsche. Uh, Jung. Young, Yes. Yes. Jung. Uh, yeah, he's walk, I, walking I, with I, Jung I, and he well, starts crying was, because he's terrified. He's, he's terrified of the fact that this is all going to end. Um, yes. But you can't
1: s- have it both ways. So, no. You know,
0: it, it, you,
1: know it, it, you have to be able to accept the dread side in order to maximally appreciate the
0: awe. Yes. So. The denial of death, or the, the awareness of death, is inbuilt into us as humans. And yet, if I was baby with robot and I never saw anyone die, would I know that I could die? Would I be fearful of death?
1: Yeah, no. So that uh, uh, it, you would be uh, indifferent. In uh, it, the only situation one might claim would be uh, in the immediate proximity. To mortal danger, in mm-hmm. which case you'd have the same fight and flight reaction of an antelope being attacked by a lion.
0: So there's some there's some things that are so hardwired into us, but what absolutely, we're, what we're talking about here, especially with death, is the ability to consciously rearrange that innate absolutely. that innate uh, sympathetic response and then create persona and narrative and you know all of the all of the uh, ridiculous extraneous stuff that we do that we t- that we totally don't need um no you got that's it you got it what am i going to s- okay i dude I, we are, we're going to have to do this again sometime mate because i've just got a million different things and the audience is well, going to have them as well um before we finish up couple of couple of quick quicker fire ones. what does tranquilize yourself with the trivial mean
1: I love that. So that's a Kierkegaard phrase that Heidegger also picks up on. And, and uh, his point is that the average individual, and, and Heidegger is quite clear when he says that this is not meant pejoratively, even though it sounds like it, because the argument is that we all do this sometimes. Uh, but what what Heidegger said is that in response to death anxiety, most people just unconsciously and unself-reflectively, they just literally desperately embrace the social role that is afforded to them in the context of their culture, and they essentially become culturally constructed meat puppets uh, who live their lives um, as caricatures of a stereotype of their particular social role. And Kierkegaard's point is that when you do that, uh you just tranquilize yourself uh with the trivial. Um uh the most um popular event in the United States every year is the Super Bowl. Uh, and so uh you know watching football, the stupid kind of football and mm. eating chicken wings and shopping, more people go shopping in the U.S. after Thanksgiving, the day after Thanksgiving, than who vote in presidential elections. That's and so crazy. it's crazy uh, and so shocking. Uh, and uh, and so that's why Frank Zappa, dead musician, he says the average American treats intelligent behavior as if it was some kind of a hideous physical deformity. And he's right. <laughs> uh, uh, and so and then Heidegger comes along and, and He's like, yeah, OK, uh, th- that's one kind of, of, of tranquilizing, you know, where you're sitting at home, uh, you, you know, just pounding beer and watching the telly. Uh, but uh, there's another kind of tranquilization, and that's just frenetic activity where you just keep yourself so busy, superficially engaged in the vagaries of life. Uh, That you appear to be there's a veneer of things going well, Mm. uh, but uh, you're actually an empty husk uh, desperately keeping busy. So you don't sit still long enough to think about the fact that you might not be fully satisfied. Do do you know Woody Allen's film uh, Annie Hall? No. Okay, so you're too young. (laughs) And so I won't go there because there's a scene. That makes reference to the denial of death that illustrates that point. But uh, so those are the two kinds of uh, being tranquilized, you know, just being passive, you know, and and being surrounded uh, by trivia and stuff or, you know, being active in one's pursuit of the uninspired and unimportant.
0: I think I've been playing around with these ideas for a little while. Um, One thing I've noticed, and I'm a massive advocate for people being as weird as they can possibly be, i.e. compromising as little of themselves for society as as is possible, because I think what that leads to is you um, not actually being able to work out what your own truth is. I wonder whether or not the fact that most people, the broad cross-section of society, prefers people that they can fit into easily defined archetypal roles is because those people don't force them to step out of that particular, um, that's the geek, that's the nerd, that's the maiden, that's the redeemed, that's the villain, that's the whatever. Um, I wonder whether that plays into what you're talking about. And I also think that the current self-development movement this kind of i'm you know i'm contributing to it although i hope that i'm doing it in a slightly more virtuous way but the the motivational speaker um you can become anything you want movement at the moment i think also is the 21st century much more cerebral manifestation of just what would have been the industry of religious speakers back in the day that this is you being able to transcend what is going on, but it's repurposed and repackaged into words that have a para-scientific, a peri-scientific sort of uh, a tinge to them, which removes the uh, criticism, the easy sort of low-hanging fruit criticism and the ickiness that religion has had and theology's kind of gotten now in a scientific society, uh, but still serves exactly the same reason that you can become anything you want. You can be more productive, do more in your day. Well, why do you want to do more in your day? Well, if I do more in my day, I get more life before it dot, 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 inevitably ends.
1: There you go. I, uh, there's an African proverb that I like. It's just give us life, life, more life. And I, <laughs> I, I love how you put it. And I also love the distinction that you just made between trying to help people make the most of themselves in a virtuous sense, which you surely are, and um, uh, becoming a a 21st century, uh, essentially uh, guru of sorts, uh, who is no different than a charismatic political leader to the extent that you're exploiting people's anxieties and insecurities for your own personal gain.
0: Well, it's it's weaponizing it isn't it and commodifying it it. that's the reason for it Um, it is
1: and uh, so I I think we um, uh, and for what it's worth uh, I think what you and like minded compatriots are doing is is honestly the way of the world I mean I'm an egghead researcher I'm proud of the work that I do I've written books I write journal articles that are non pharmacological interventions for insomnia um, uh, you know, I we write stuff, and maybe twelve people on Earth <laughs> are uh, uh, partake of it. Uh, you said that you learned of my ideas uh, from uh, talking to Lex, uh, and I, I enjoyed talking to him immensely. Um, it, there have been more people who I have exchanged ideas with uh, in the last six weeks than I have in the last six years. Uh, for two reasons. One is is that uh, this is a much more um, effective medium for the dissemination of ideas and and the second is, This is, we are uber-social creatures who come to know ourselves in the context of uh, sincere conversations with others. That's one of the things that I like about Heidegger, even though he was a Nazi, is that he emphasized the incredibly important role uh, of language and discourse. Uh, And if there's a hope for humankind, uh, uh, the way I see it, it's going to be a proliferation of uh, people uh that are doing what you're doing in the various manifestations or, or incarnations i think it gives me great hope
0: yeah me too i think that um what's interesting is is a lot of people i think are drawn to these sort of longer form uh reflective introspective conversations Uh, because maybe they're hungry for them elsewhere. They they can't talk to their brother or sister or friends about it because that doesn't feel very natural. And the bizarre thing is that upon us now having a platform and a communications network which permits us to do this globally, you realize that the solitude and the weirdness that you thought was a personal affliction your whole life is actually very commonplace and you're an incredibly good company.
1: There you go, but again, you just made a, 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 a you made an earth shattering point. And a guy named C Wright Mills in a book called The Power Elite, written in the nineteen fifties, he made the same point, and that's that most of us uh, and Hannah Arendt made this point in her book about fascism, and that is that uh, that what that what makes a, a society ripe for fascism is that if everybody feels isolated. Um, and and has a sense or that nobody shares their problems and and there's nothing more uplifting even if it's painful than to recognize that what you might have been attributed uh, uh, to yourself as your own personal malady uh, is a uh, more common than you think and b may not be due to your own um, weaknesses as an individual, but rather as the inevitable result of structural inequalities built into, uh, you know, macro institutional systems. And so I think there's a lot to be gained from these kinds of pursuits.
0: Absolutely. And the other thing as well is that weirdness and uniqueness is your competitive advantage. Even, you know, if I need to say it again to the people who are listening, it might not feel like it, but you should view the particular quirks that you have as competitive advantages in the same way as as soon as you can flip a workout from when it hurts this is bad to when yes. it hurts i lean this. into discomfort because that's what i'm here for if yes. you view your weirdness your uniqueness the particular peculiarities that you have the lisp the slight the 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 offset hips the pain in your back the you yes. know the good looks the bad looks the traumas all of that stuff if you Purpose them toward, okay, that makes me more interesting. That makes me more unique. That makes me less of the archetypal, stereotypical caricature that I could be if I decide yes. to nerf the edges and round off the corners of my life. That's not the way it is. And I, I can say from personal experience that upon embracing all of the weird, weird, and wonderful elements of my life that I have, my life has got linearly or exponentially better. From then until now. And Sheldon, I know that you have to dash off, mate. Um, I, I feel like we could go on for much longer, and i really keen to get you back. Um, if people want to find out more about yourself, where should they go?
1: Uh, they should uh, go to uh, the internet and uh, look me up at Skidmore College, uh, which is in Saratoga Springs, New York, or just email me, S Solomon, S S O L O M O N, at Skidmore. Dot edu so i'm kind of third world i don't have a website or twitter uh, uh, but i do answer email and i welcome uh, questions uh, and love exchanging ideas and uh, i do appreciate all of this chris and so i i sincerely hope that this is the beginning of an ongoing exchange of, of uh, ideas i thought this was great
0: thank you me too final 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 question let's say someone wants to get into Some of the stuff that we've spoken about today, you must have name-dropped 20-plus authors. Who is an accessible – what is an accessible book that someone can get into? okay,
1: at the risk of uh, of being self-promoting – Get it uh, out
0: there, Sheldon, get it out there.
1: I would say uh, that Ernest Becker's The Denial of Death or another book called The Birth and Death of Meaning are where we got our ideas from. Uh, But a lot of folks uh, find that to be difficult. Um, We wrote a book called The Worm at the Core um, uh, on the role of death in life. And it was our desire uh, to uh, present these ideas in a conversational manner. And so uh, anybody that might want to uh, just get introduced to these notions, um, I would suggest that. Um, And I don't like selling things. Um, If you happen to go buy our book, um, that's fine. If five more people buy it, I'll be able to buy shoes. Um, (laughs) Anybody that wants to see our book, um if you just email me i'd be happy to send you a, a pdf file of the book so i don't want to appear to be shilling for anything uh, sheldon, the so people
0: that are listening if they've enjoyed today the amazon link to worming the call will be in the show notes below go and check it out um like i say sheldon i'm really really excited to get you back on hopefully this is the beginning of a, uh, a of a burgeoning friendship between us but for now mate thank you so much
1: uh, very much so for me too and thanks chris and we'll talk again soon Love oh.